Good morning, Vermont. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint uh, on the Friendly Pioneer. I am your new Tuesday host, Brad Wright. For those of you who are wondering, okay, who's this bozo? Um, I'll just give you a quick introduction. I'm a 1979 graduate of Linden State College, or as it was called back then. Um, I was afforded a relatively unique opportunity to report on news and sports from 79 to about 89, and then left in 91. From there, producer at CNN in Washington, working in the White House, the Pentagon, Congress, lots of other things. Uh, a brief stint at the Agency of Natural Resources here in Waterbury. There were some consulting projects that um, uh, after that and, and, and some uh, a short uh, stint at Rutland Regional Medical Center. Finally, back in D.C. at the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare for about 11 years. So that last organization is where I reconnect this morning because for those of you who are Medicare beneficiaries, there are just a couple of days left to make the changes you may want or need to make because of changes, for example, in the Part D drug coverage program that you may have. Uh, joining us is Dan Adcock, my old friend, uh, the Director of Government Relations and Policy for the National Committee. Dan, welcome. Good morning, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's uh, great to have you on. Um, so I just, uh, first of all, I just want to see if, if you can tell us what are the most important things to consider about making changes to your Medicare plan? Well, this is your opportunity to, to make a change in, your, in either your Medicare Part D plan, your drug plan, or if you're in the private Medicare Advantage plan to make a change from one plan to another, or if you are so inclined because maybe you more have more health care risks and want a greater selection of doctors, you want to go back to traditional Medicare, uh, you also have a chance to change uh, Medigap plans that help uh, fill the gaps uh, that traditional Medicare have. So there's lots of options, but there's not really a lot of ta- people who take advantage of it. Only about 2% of the 65 million people uh, actually take advantage of it, and it behooves them to do that because you know, maybe there's a new drug you're on that currently isn't covered by your Medicare Part D plan, and then maybe it's time to find another one that does cover it. So it's time to shop around uh, for that, just to give you an example. But now is the time to do it, and you have until uh, um, uh, Thursday to, to be able to do it because that's when the current uh, Medicare open enrollment uh, uh, season ends. Okay, so uh, Part B uh, premiums uh, for next year, do we know what they're going to be? Yeah, we do. Uh, they went up uh, uh, by uh, they went up. Let's see, by nine dollars and eighty cents uh, for a total of one hundred and seventy-four dollars and seventy cents per person. Now that's the standard premium. Now, if you um, are somebody who is a single individual who uh, makes more than eighty-five thousand dollars a year, uh, that amount's going to be more, and it's done on a sliding a few scale. But for most folks, especially most folks listening to this broadcast. Their premium next year is going to go up by nine dollars and eighty cents to seven hundred seventy-four dollars and seventy cents. Okay, all right. So let's talk a little bit about Social Security. Uh, there is a what a three point two percent cost of living increase coming in January. Uh, that's correct. Uh, you know, right now currently the average retiree brings in about uh, not a lot of dough, but it's about one thousand seven hundred sixty-two dollars a month. Uh, so that means for them, with a 3.2% increase in the cost of living adjustment for 2024, that their coal is going to be $56.38. And obviously, given the cost of living, you know, it's going to be hard to absorb all the new costs that individuals have. 
with that amount. But um, uh, uh, unlike a lot of private pension systems, they're not going to get any kind of COLA. So at least it is good as there. It's just not good enough, and that's why uh, my organization, the National Committee, supports something called the Consumer Price Index for the elderly that would uh, measure inflation, uh, the, the kind of inflation that elderly people have, that older people have, that uh, that reflects especially the fact that they spend uh, about 28% of their income on health care expenses, which generally increases at a rate greater than general inflation. Wow. Um, what do you find about that that um, is is troubling to you the most? Well, the thing is, is that this is, you know, the, uh, when the, the, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is part of the Department of Labor first many years ago, decided on um, a, a measurement to try to calculate what the COLA would be, they picked one that was off the shelf that was already available, and that was for urban and, and clerical uh, wage earners. Well, that doesn't sound a lot like older people, and it doesn't sound like a lot the way older people spend their money, but that's, that's the best that they could do. Um, but since that time, uh, many, also many years ago, there's an experimental consumer price index, specifically one for the elderly that was created that did a better job of measuring things, especially like the disproportionate share uh, that seniors spend on health care. And also, to, again, uh, it took into better consideration that health care raises at a rate greater than, than general inflation, and that's why the CPIE would, would be a better measure. It just hasn't happened yet. Uh, but um, politically, that's something that we've spent a lot of our resources uh, trying to get Congress to adopt, but it hasn't. But it's still uh, a goal that we have yet to achieve. Okay, Dan, um, we uh, want to invite uh, your listener phone calls to, if you'd like to ask Dan a question about Social Security or Medicare, we'd be uh, happy to field that for you. So um, you are welcome to call in at 802-244-1777. That is 802 802- Two four four seventeen seventy seven. 1777 Dan, uh, one aspect of these uh, programs um, that many Vermonters may be aware of, they keep hearing this, is that the notion is that they are propelling the national debt. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, they actually make the national debt better because of the fact that <clears throat> both uh, – Social Security and Medicare Part A, that's the hospital insurance side of Medicare, they have trust funds, uh, and they take in cash in the, in the form of FICA taxes that you pay in every one of your paychecks, uh, and that cash is immediately converted into Treasury securities where that cash is used to buy indebtedness. So actually, it, it's helping out with the indebtedness in the United States. And so, you know, when some politicians, especially those who want to cut Social Security and Medicare, say that the program is going bank, bankrupt, or that's adding to the national debt, they couldn't be farther from the truth. Not only doesn't does these programs not create debt, uh, but they help to finance the debt that we currently that currently occurs in this country. How does that work exactly? Well, like I said, what, what happens is, is that the money that comes you know, there's real money that comes in when you if you're paying your paycheck and you're you know you're contributing x amount of dollars every every paycheck to both Social Security and Medicare that money. Uh, uh, what it happens is it immediately goes to the government and, <clears throat> and it immediately goes to pay benefits for current beneficiaries. But if there's any money that's left over, uh, those reserves are held within the trust funds, the Social Security Trust Fund and the Medicare Part A uh, trust fund. Uh, and those reserves are held <clears throat> in the form of Treasury security. So that real money that you paid, that you earned, 
goes into a treasury security that's guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. It's considered to be one of the safest investments in the world, not only so safe that most foreign governments invest in it. Uh, and then at a time when the trust fund needs to use those reserves, those, uh, those treasury securities um, <clears throat> are converted back to cash and paid out in benefits. But while those, while those treasury securities are held in the trust fund, they earn interest, and that interest uh, is something that uh, is used to help finance Social Security and Medicare. In fact, last, this last year, according to the Social Security trustees, the interest in the Social Security interest from the Social Security trust fund earned sixty-six billion dollars that was used on Social Security benefits. Now, the uh, interest on this uh, has to be paid by taxpayers, right? I mean, does is that the piece that adds to the debt? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Again, it doesn't add to the debt because of the fact that the trust fund itself um, it helps to finance the debt. So the answer to the question is no. Okay. I mean, that interest would have to be paid anyway. Uh, I would guess it would depend on whether or not debt was incurred in order to pay that interest. I see. I see. Uh, again, uh, we'd like to uh, um, have a uh, a caller, and we in fact I do have uh, Mark on the line from uh, Middlesex. Mark, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. What's your question for Dan? Yeah. Hello. Go ahead, Mark. Yep. Hey, Mark. Um, you know, you, you you're talking about this uh, as money. It actually isn't. It's a it's a debt instrument on every bill. You know, has. Federal Reserve note. A note is an instrument of debt. You know, uh, it, it, there's nothing backing it up. It's it's debt. We're passing debt around now. I mean, we used to have a reserve, you know, of gold and silver and copper it, to back it up. And then it, <clears throat> excuse me, switched to uh, oil is backing up the dollar. Um, petrodollar, I guess, is one of the words. Um, because every barrel of oil on the planet used to be traded in U.S. dollars. That was a monopoly, world monopoly, set up by Bush, uh, Prescott Bush, the grandfather, Standard Oil, back in 1908. Um, I made a deal with the Arabs. You're not getting along with the Brits again so well, so we'll make a deal. You have the oil, we have the technology. And we'll support you militarily if you trade your oil on the market in U.S. dollars. So anybody that wanted to get into oil trade from then on had to trade in U.S. dollars. Um, so what we're passing around is debt, and how do you pay debt with that? Um, I'll get off. Thanks. Okay. So, uh, Dan, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, yeah, certainly something that is, you know, a U.S. government bond technically is not money, but it's something that, that is of value. And if it wasn't a value, then then uh, people wouldn't be considered one of the safest investments in the world. And, and people wouldn't take that same indebtedness and convert it into cash as they do every day. So, you know, in terms of it being a, an incredible deal for taxpayers, and especially for Social Security and Medicare beneficiaries, you couldn't find a better one. Um, so that's why we think it's a great, you know, a great way to finance the program. And I think it's it's important to realize that, again, while it's not actual cash, uh, when it comes time to redeem the cash, it's redeemed. And that's always happened, especially in Social Security in the more than 80 years history of the program. So uh, it's not something 
that, that keeps us up at night uh, because of the program. It's something that, that works and works very well. So, uh, Dan, uh, last week we heard that there was a hearing to discuss a debt commission for ent- what politicians like to call entitlement programs. Can you talk <laughs> a little bit about that and what is what is the goal here with a a debt commission? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the House Budget Committee held a, uh, a hearing on a debt commission. This is something that New Speaker Johnson wants to do. It's something he said he would do. Uh, and initially, I think he, he started the wheels in motion to do it unilaterally, meaning the House would do it, but the Senate would, be, would not be compelled to do it. And so the House Budget Committee is looking at legislation that would compel both the House and the Senate to take up any recommendations that a debt commission would come up with, probably mainly members of Congress, uh, to make uh, changes to Social Security and Medicare. But the real reason why these are created is, is that Social Security and Medicare are overwhelmingly popular programs regardless of party affiliation or age. Whenever our organization, the National Committee, or any media outlet has ever done any polling on these programs, uh, they are very popular. I'm talking 70 to 80% range uh, in cuts, cuts to these programs, cuts to their benefits are equally unpopular because people see these benefits as their benefits because they earn them through their, through their payroll taxes. Um, and so what these commissions are created to do is to try to uh, have uh, at least bring in some bipartisan members uh, to give those who want to cut these programs some political cover. So the idea being is that if a bipartisan collection of members of Congress decide they want to cut Social Security and Medicare, then they're somewhat politically insulated from that process the commission does uh, does that, um, and also in terms of the process that these commissions are involved in, since they're trying to do this, uh, uh, trying to, to circumvent the regular order, uh, it means that they're going to bypass the committees that are responsible for, for Social Security and Medicare and do it on their own and do it so quickly that it's hard for the public to take notice of what's going on. And for many people, uh, the cuts to, the pro- the, to these benefits might be made before people take notice. Uh, and so we're we're worried, really worried about them. We obviously are very engaged in trying to expose light to what these folks are doing, uh, but we want to do everything we can to make these uh, commissions as radioactive as possible, and under, also make people understand uh, that uh, voting for them is not something that's free; that it's going to be hurtful and costful uh, to both current and future beneficiaries. What is the relationship between? Uh, the conservatives in Congress and and Social Security and Medicare, is it that they have always wanted to get rid of them or do they just want to cut around the edges? What do you think? Well, it's interesting. I, I mean, I know that just to give you an example, former President Trump has said that he opposed cuts to Social Security, but during his presidential administration, he was supportive of cutting Social Security disability insurance benefits, which are part of Social Security. So that wasn't entirely too true. But generally, if you were to go to, say, for instance, the House uh, Subcommittee on Social Security, whether the Congress has been under Democratic or Republican control, and the debate has usually been something like this. Republican members of the, of the committee think that Social Security are, uh, is a great program, uh, but they're not willing to raise taxes, meaning payroll taxes, on people who are uh, wealthy in order to finance the program. Well, the only option left in the Social Security program, if you want to extend solvency or add new benefits, is to cut benefits. 
And so that's that's the quiet part they don't say out loud. Democrats, on the other hand, are, are generally willing to raise payroll taxes in order to finance the program. And the polling bears that out. There's an organization called the National Academy of Social Insurance that did some polling recently that found that not, not only did people want to increase and make ensure that people who are more wealthy pay their fair share of Social Security payroll taxes, that even just rank-and-file individuals were, will, were willing to have the rate of what they pay go up in order to ensure that the program uh, has what it needs to, to, uh, to pay benefits and pay more generous benefits to the growing share of Americans who don't even have uh, private sector, any kind of uh, employer-provided retirement benefits. Is uh, a lot of people view Social Security as a pension, but it really isn't a pension. Is that right? It's that's that's yes and no. Uh, it's the close for many Americans because pensions have kind of gone the way of the defined uh, defined benefit pensions have kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. It's the closest thing that they're ever going to have that resembles a pension. Uh, because it's a guaranteed benefit and it's inflation protected through the cost of living adjustment. Uh, and in terms of being solid as something as a source of income and retirement, it's more solid than what they can expect from their employer. Because, you know, the federal government, if, if the federal government goes out of business, then we're all in big trouble. Uh, but if Exxon or Mobile or United Airlines goes out of business, that's not really good. But the end of the world is not going to come. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that's the difference. Listeners, uh, what do you think about the possibility of having your benefits trimmed, cut, or whatever? Do you have a question for Dan Adcock about the future of Social Security? Uh, your your calls are welcome. You're at 802-244-1777 if you'd like to ask Dan Adcock a question about Social Security. Uh, Dan, uh, is there, are there limits to how much a person can make in Social Security? Yeah, yeah. The, the limit is going to be based on uh, how much they're they're able to pay in Social Security payroll taxes. So if they are paying up to the limit, which currently is one hundred sixty thousand dollars, two hundred one hundred sixty thousand two hundred, it's going to be uh, the amount that they're going to be earning is based on that. Now the Social Security formula, and I'm not going to get overly complicated here because it is very complicated, is based on a progressive benefit formula where lower wage earners get a higher share. Um, uh, of their income back, the more you make, the lower your replacement value. That is, the less money you're going to get as a percentage back when you are working. Uh, but you still are going to have, if you're at the, the cap at currently, again, at $160,200, uh, then you're going to be in the $3,000 range in terms of what their month, what monthly benefit will, will re- you'll receive. Uh, but you can't earn any more than <clears throat> what your highest 35 years uh, of salary ha- has been based on your earnings records. The uh, early part of, uh, or the the minimum, the the the, the youngest age that you can um, a, a file for benefits for legally um, is age sixty-two. Um, right. Do you see any any wiggle room there? I mean, if if in fact during these negotiations, mm-hmm. um, age sixty two was taken off the table as a retirement age or, or to begin receiving benefits, um, does that make any sense? Uh, not if you uh, not if you're somebody who uh, who has a family history that's not that longevity isn't your strong suit uh, that you're not going to live that long. 
Also, it's not so great for people who had very labor-intensive jobs who can't work past that point. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure what those folks are supposed to do for their, their income. But one of the things that's being contemplated, and this is something that we've seen out of the House Republican Study Committee group that had a proposal to do this, is raise their retirement age up towards 70. You can do that, and uh, what will happen to the individual, and, but they would keep the 62 age at the same rate. So right now, if you retire at age 62, you take a 25% hit in your benefit reduction versus if you rate it until you're in the full normal retirement age, which for most people right now is 60, uh, 67. But if you were to raise the retirement age to 70, then those same 62-year-olds who retired at 62 um, would take a 50% hit. Wow. Um, so it could be catastrophic, for I think, for individuals in that situation. So that's why, you know, we don't want it to happen. And any way you slice it, even if you're blessed with very long, with great longevity in your family that you're going to live to 100 or more, it's still a benefit cut. So uh, that's why we don't want we, we don't want to see that happen. So we just have about a minute left. Uh, Jim from Roxbury has a question for Dan Adcock. Jim, welcome. Hi, thanks. Um, I didn't hear the whole program, so I hope hopefully you haven't covered this. But I'm curious that I know there's been quite a bit of discussion about having um, the whole Social Security funding. Um, maybe not controlled, but overseen by uh, financial advisors and making it more of a – I get a little concerned when the government's dealing with our money. But um, So I'm wondering what, you, what your thoughts are in regards to having more of a, uh, I don't know, independent or a financial group take a look at earnings and our Social Security investments and things like that. Oh, well, thanks for your question, Jim. Um, you know, the, the the way that the Social Security Trust Fund is financed is totally trans, transparent. Anybody can um, any anybody can look to see you know, how money comes in, how much money comes in, and how much money goes out, and how much money is, is held in the trust fund. Um, I can't think of something that's more transparent in terms of retirement benefits than the Social Security Trust Fund. In fact, it has uh, a, a uh, the, the administrative costs for for the trust fund are lower than anything you'll ever find on Wall Street. So, I mean, I think I don't have a problem with individuals conducting oversight, and that's Congress's job to ensure that money is being spent. But there's never been any kind of allegation whatsoever that there's any kind of problem with the, with the way the accounting or the way that it's done. I mean, people who are professionals at the Department of Treasury, uh, at the, what is called the Financial Management Service, are responsible for making sure that that happens. And, and I just I, I don't know that anybody's ever really seen a problem with that. Dan, we got to go. Thank you very much for your conf- for your uh, uh, comments today. We appreciate it very much. This is WDEV in Waterbury. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, we have with us this morning. Dr. Eva Pascal, who is an assistant professor of religious studies at St. Michael's College in Colchester. Dr. Pascal, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, we so much appreciate having you. Um, so in the discussion of the horrible situation in Israel and Palestine, um, the the Gaza and the West, the occupied West Bank. Boy, what a what a tinderbox this is. Um, I wanted to see if we could talk a little bit about the history of of this, so that it, because it, it so informs what is happening now. 
Um, could we, t- could you just give a summary of how these two peoples, Jews and Palestinians, got along together prior to like 1947? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. And there's so many layers of history that you could go back to. I mean, this land that was we know as Palestine today, the name change that occurred under the Romans after several Jewish revolts, including one, the famous Bar Kafta revolt, where they uh, quashed that revolt and then it decided to change the name from Judea and other things it was called to Palestine because they saw this as a the Philist, you know, it was connected to the Philistines in the Bible, and they said, well, these are the enemies of the Jews, so we're going to name it that. So, so you have the Romans, and the Romans end up becoming Christian, of course, and this is what we know today as the Byzantine Empire. Of course, they didn't know themselves as the Byzantines. They just called themselves Roman. And so this is a kind of Christian area administered through Constantinople, then you have another layer coming in of the what is called the Arab conquest of Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem. And Christians and Jews are known as people of the book. So under Islamic rule, they are known as minorities called the Dimi. This is a minority status in which they pay a tax called the jizya uh, in order for military protection, but you know, they can't become strived in the army or have political office and so on and so forth. So, you know, we have another layer of going on there. And then we have eventually the Ottoman Empire that takes over that part of the world. And it's by the time we get up, you know, we're, we're kind of going very fast through history. Sure, sure of course. Right? Uh, one of the complications of this land is that under the Ottomans, you know, they, they required – people living there in Palestine to pay taxes, of course. And one of the ways people, Christians and Jews and other people, got out of paying taxes, that they, they wouldn't register the whole land, right? And so the record, this is part of what Palestinians say today. Like, we didn't, you know, we, we were on this land, but it wasn't necessarily registered under the Ottomans, right? So when the British come, they defeat the Ottomans, World War One, Sure. Right? And they have the mandate. Uh, and, you know, the, the famous uh, Barfour Declaration in 1917, then eventually Israel declares their independence. And so you have all these disputes about the land come up where the Israelis then come in and say, well, you, you have no registration of this land. We can just take it, right? Uh, because the records don't show that you actually own it. Maybe you own like one acre, but... in the record shows one acre, but maybe own 10, right? You see, you have this family saying, Christians and and, and Muslim families saying, hey, we we actually were sitting on this land for a long time, but we didn't register it, and so on. So I'm just showing you the complications of of this, these, uh, of of the relationship here. Uh, This land is always kind of conquered, if you were. There's not an independence of this area that we know as Palestine. It's either under the Roman Byzantines or it's under the Ottomans or it's under the British until we get then the League of Nations and UN proposing a two-state 
one for the two states, one for the Arabs, and one for the Jews. Yeah. It, okay. it so that gives a big that's a that thirty thousand view. Right, thirty thousand yeah. foot view. Right. So when you get down to the nitty gritty, if we can, sure. I think what we were yeah. getting at is a relationship is is uh, I think tense. There's um, outbreaks of violence against. So you have. Jewish militias prior to, you know, in, in 1947-48. Sure. Um, like the Darius Singh attack is one that all, often comes up for, for yep. many people that uh, say, saying they're Palestinian. They were attacked by the Jewish militia who eventually, they say, became the the Israeli army. And, yeah. and then you have Hebron where Jews are attacked in that town prior to 1947 too. Yep. So there is kind of infighting long history yes a long long history there of regional fighting in villages and in little towns in the region throughout there is a historical jewish presence and they you know it's it's not necessarily the same people at all times but there are jews in and around the what was known as palestine uh for centuries and so this is part of the claim of Israel to the land. We, we've always kind of been on this land prior, you know, going back to, you know, they would say going back to David, essentially, yeah, in the right, Bible. Right. right. So they've both been there. And and they've both, they've both uh, uh, conducted acts of violence against yes. each other. Now, um, 1947 and following the Holocaust, which is a factor here, right? Of course. Um, so my... My what I've read is that Palestinian historians have suggested that Jews wanted to ethnically cleanse the land, and then um, Israeli historians have seemed to suggest that Palestinians were asked to stay, but left either because they chose not to live with Jews or because they thought the Arab powers would defeat Israel's military and then they could come back at their leisure, uh, perhaps. Um, uh, how do you how do you see this? I there's I think there's some truth to both these claims. Yeah. Um, we have in the historical record that the Arab nations or you know powers if you will had suggested that hey we're going to we are going to invade which they did and it would be better if you leave and then you know after we fix this problem with Israel you can come back. There is also in the historical record that Israel went in and, and said, oh, we're going to remove some people from this land. Darius Singh and others are, are, are part of this history. Sure. So uh, I think there's two sides to this claim, and both have some truth to it, and we can find evidence for both in the historical record. So things have gotten so bad now yeah. uh, that um, it doesn't seem like the two – Will ever really be able to live side by side? Is that uh, within this confines of the of the same country? Would you? Do you agree with that? What do you think? Of the same? Yeah, yes. I mean the people people living you know next yeah. door to each other. Well, this is complicated. Uh, well, there's one of the issues that seems to emerge over and over again is the issue of the Israeli state itself. Sure. Right. And so this is a conundrum, uh, you know, for this, 
for many Palestinians, this is so. If you come from one perspective, and it's not that the facts are wrong; it's, it's a, you know it's a different way of viewing it. This is embroiled in colonialism. Mm-hmm. It is part of a kind of Western colonial project or yeah. an out, out, outgrowth of that. It's an occupation, and Israel doesn't have a legitimacy in this area. All right, this is the Palestine to the Sea slogan, right? right. And, and that sure. means like the, Israel has no right to be there. Yeah. It is for the Palestinians, and so on. And just just if you stop there, that is a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't think Israel should be there or exist, that, you know where where they what where do you go the, with that? What is that? That right. that itself is where Israel is come in and say that is the real ethnic cleansing. Like you're going to rid the land of where either they're going to be killed or we're going to see the, a mass exodus somehow where Israel is not going to just say, oh, we're just going to leave. Where are they going to go? Right. Uh, right. So that's one side of it. Do you recognize the state of Israel? Right. And Hamas, of course, will not. And they right. have been very uh, violent, I will yes. say. Uh, it's, 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 it's all barbaric right. in some ways. Right. And I think. It's incumbent on us, just as looking in, to take that seriously. Mm. Like they say they don't want Israel to exist. And so we need to take them at their word. Sure. That, you know, and I think the Israelis say we need to take them at their word. They cannot live with us. Right. Right. And it, I'm not certain they would allow, even if there were one state, they would want to control it, whether Jews would be allowed in that state. Yeah. Because we see that, uh, under Hamas, uh, if they're not going to let Jews in Gaza or anything like that, they'll be killed immediately. Right. Uh, right. So whether the Palestinian Authority can ever recognize Israel is another question. I mean, I think Arafat entertained the idea, sure. but in, he never really accepted it. Right. Uh, right. And others have been given options for a two-state so. And, and Americans are very committed to this. Remember, in, in, in terms of the rhetoric about this, Americans always jump to that, you know. Right. Because they've all, not always, Oslo is, is somewhat different, but have been involved in, in trying to broker peace in terms of a two-state solution. Okay. Dr. Pascal, um, how she, what is the Christian view of all this, the Christian community that is also there? And it's actually also their holy land too. Um, what um, what what should the Christian community look or feel about all of this since they may not have a direct uh, dog in this fight they're still there how do you how would you, how do we view that as as Christians so there's two questions there I think um, sure if I've heard you correctly there are Christians in Israel Palestine. So that's one dimension of it. They're about, I think, my last looking three to four percent of the population, and among them are uh, ident- some identify as Palestinians and live in. There's about a thousand in Gaza right now, by the way, uh, Christians only. There, there was about 3,700, and you know, before Hamas came in, and, and they've slowly left and dwindled down to about a thousand. And there are Christians in the West Bank. And then there are Christians who are citizens of Israel. So uh, there would be uh, – Israel prefers to call them Arab Israelis, if you will. 
Right. Interesting. So, yeah, that they call them that, and yet they're Christians? Yes, and some of them claim in their movements and Christian parties in Israel that are citizens that say, well, actually, we're not Arab by ethnicity because hmm. we were here prior to the Arab conquest. We are Arab in terms of we can speak Arab and, and we're, we're kind of part of the community. So that's one layer, the, the people who are inside of Israel who are citizens. Sure. Now, the Christians who are, you know, tend to not be citizens and identify as Palestinian tend to be for the cause of the wider Palestinian cause of, of, of de-occupying the land, if you will. And yeah. uh, they are very vocal about that, many of them, and, and feel a lot of affinity for the Palestinians and Palestinian cause. And so uh, many of them are very vocal about that, that we need to be critical of Israel and we need to – we need a, either a two-state solution or, or give back some of this land to the Palestinians. Some of them who lost land uh, to the Israelis through either settlements or initial grabbing of land that were claimed after the Ottomans sure. that we had discussed a little bit earlier. Right. Um, do they watch all of this in horror and or, 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 or are they more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, as, you, as you've kind of suggested? I think there's a wide range of views. I think many who identify as Palestinian and, and speak Arabic and so on are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Hmm. And so uh, and, uh, and there are some, of course, who are supportive of Israel and have Israeli citizenship. And uh, polling data seems to suggest that Arab Muslims and so-called Arab, and we have to put that in quotation, Christians tend to be supportive of the Israeli state, but those who identify as Palestinians may not have citizenship tend to be supportive of the Palestinian cause. And, you know, the the cause of Palestinian liberation in whatever way that looks, either two-state or uh, giving back the land to the Palestinians and having some autonomy for the Palestinians. In this country, Does that, I hope that makes sense. Sure, sure. It, it, in this country, um, I get the feeling that many conservative Christians are very hard line in terms of their support of the state of Israel and Jews. Why? I think there are many reasons. Uh, in the reason, you know, there's multiple layers to this. But uh, let's address the support. The support is very high. It's somewhere, my last look, and, you know, there's different polls, somewhere around 80% of, say, evangelical Christians, if you could just put that under one umbrella, are very supportive of the state of Israel. And there was a group of evangelicals very early on, I think it was October 11 or something, wrote a a letter saying, hey, we support Israel in this, we're against terrorism, and and Christians should support Israel. That letter was put in Christianity Today and other places as well. So it it is a very strong support. I think there are theological reasons that they some of them cite for supporting of Israel. There is historic reasons because of the close connection between Judaism and Christianity, there is affinity 
in terms of values. So they cite a kind of Judeo-Christian value system mm-hmm. that is the pillar, they would say, of democracy and liberal uh, liberal rights and so on and so forth. And uh, of course, there's you know there's a lot of evangelicals who are going to the Holy Land. So the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, travel to the Holy Land, is very high. And of course, there's Messianic Judaism that we can talk about as well. Uh, that is is ways that Jews who are Christian then identify with these evangelicals, if that makes sense. So, sure. and then there, of course, there's political reasons this uh, uh-huh. for, yeah. for this affinity. Sure. Um, just in about a minute or so that we have left, um, how much of this, of any of this, surprises you as a scholar? I think it's sadly not so surprising. However, the what is surprising, I think, is at least October 7th, the initial just horror of it, and then watching the kind of glee that took place mm. among those who perpetrated it. Uh, and, and so that, that part was, I think, for many people, just very disturbing. Yeah. And then the, you know, d- d- the reactions have been very interesting as well to watch. And so we've seen it, you know, Islamophobia with the incident here and anti-Semitism going rife. Uh, so I think that is surprising to see yeah. this kind of come out in the open in that way. But wow. maybe it's good because then we can talk. Right. About <laughs> right. All right. Well, listen, um, we have could go on for a long time with this conversation. But uh, Dr. Eva Pascal, uh, thank you so much for uh, your comments today. The assistant professor of religious studies at St. Michael's College. Uh, news at the top of the hour is coming up and we will be right back with hour two of the Vermont Viewpoint program. Thank you.